Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 17 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the pew in front of you or the chair in front of you. It's right under the chair, and it looks like this. If you go to page 858 in the Black Pew Bible, you'll find Matthew chapter 5. 5 is the big number. That's the chapter number, and 17 is the small number. Those are the verse numbers. If this is the first time you're looking at a Bible, uh, we're glad for you to be here with us this morning to consider what God's Word says to the churches and to our world today. I'm going to read it now, 5 verses 17 to 20. This is in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He just, gave over, he just gave the eight Beatitudes of the Blessed One, the one that He has made blessed and what they're like. Then He talked about how they are the salt and light of the world because they are strangely joyful when they're opposed and persecuted. Very strange, this group of people. But when they're persecuted and opposed for righteousness' sake, it eggs them on to love people even more and to humbly serve and speak the truth even more to people. And so that's salty and bright. We talked about that two weeks ago. And so now Jesus gets to the... That's all introduction to his, his sermon. Now he's getting to, the, to um, the actual body of the sermon. And he begins here in verse 17 with these words. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill... For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all these things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, with our Bibles open before us now, we have just heard you speak in the very reading of your word. We pray now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in this word, that you would incline our hearts and soften our hearts to want your word, to be pierced and convicted by your word, to be transformed by your word in such a way that we would love your word more and love you more and love others more, that we would indeed grow in righteousness. So we pray for your Holy Spirit's almighty power taking this powerful word to transform us. Grant us the gift of repentance of fresh faith, and of a resolve to desire and do good works for your glory and for the spread of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm hearing a little bit of feedback, just a pinch if you could um, take that out, that'd be great. Well, we all want to shine our light for Jesus as we spoke of, as I just said here by introduction. Um, we are the light of the world, so we want to shine for Christ. We are the salt of the earth, so we want to, um, to spread this gospel of Jesus Christ and, and um, preserve this world in some ways in regard to being salt in the world. We want to flavor this world with God's grace. 
And um, we want to share the gospel. Christians love sharing the gospel with other people. At the same time, we feel our, um, what did I say? We, we feel our hesitation, our struggle, and it actually gets discouraging sometimes when we think about our personal practice and frequency of sharing the gospel. We don't do it as frequently as we like or as frequently as we should. And it's not when we do do it or when we try to whip ourselves up into evangelizing and sharing the gospel, we often do it not out of joy and the overflow of joy, but often we do it with a, a, a sense of a burden of obligation to share, maybe even sometimes merely as a duty. Um, and so we feel guilty. We know we should share. And so perhaps in, in that light, we sometimes share the gospel. And when that happens to us, um, we can easily feel discouraged and maybe even not just discouraged, but when the joy isn't brimming to overflowing, we could even feel powerless. Like, man, I, I want to want to share the gospel, but I don't want to. Or I, I want to love the person where I'm excited to, but I, but I just hesitate. I feel like I don't have the power to just say it and say it wisely and helpfully and boldly. Well, if that's a problem for you, maybe being discouraged about sharing the gospel or feeling powerless or incapable of really sharing the gospel well, I have good news for you this morning. That's why you came, right? You came for some good news. So I have some good news from God's word for you this morning. And the good news is this. Jesus gives us in this passage two overwhelming reasons that empower our lives and our witness. So if in this passage, you have two overwhelming reasons that if you grasp here and if it gets to sink down here, it actually pushes out into joyful overflowing of, I can't contain this, I need to share the gospel of Jesus, okay? And so I find that encouraging because I often get discouraged by my coldness of heart and my lack of concern sometimes for my lost neighbors or even for my Christian brothers and sisters as well. So we want to understand these two reasons. But before we get to these two reasons, you need to understand the main, the main call the, the duty Jesus is calling us to, and that's found in verse 19. So go back to verse 19, and you'll see it there, the main duty that Jesus is calling us to. Therefore, whoever breaks, and that's not a good translation, maybe whoever um, uh, relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But here's the call. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to do two things. To do and teach what? The commands, right? To do and teach the commands. So, so that is the main duty, to do and teach the commands. Now why do I say that this is like sharing the gospel? Does this sound like anything else in Matthew? To teach people to obey Christ's commands? To teach them to obey everything he commanded? What does that sound like? The what? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, verse 20, right? And that's, it's certainly in line. This is a precursor to the end of the book. And so Jesus is calling his people to be teachers, to not necessarily get to be a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, but to be those who regularly do and teach 
Christ's commands. All right, so the main goal of this passage is do and teach all that Christ commands you so that you shine as gospel light and prove yourself to be a kingdom citizen. All right, so do and teach all that Christ commands you. That's the, that's the main call here, right? Do and teach all that Christ commands you so that you shine as gospel light. That's the previous passage. And so that, from verse 20, so that you prove yourself to actually be a real Christian. You prove yourself, you show, you evidence yourself to be a kingdom citizen, that you are one of those who have and will enter the kingdom. So do and, I'll say it one more time, do and teach all that Christ commands so that you shine your gospel light and prove or evidence yourself to be a true kingdom citizen. Now, I told you that the the encouragement of this text is that Christ gives us two overwhelming reasons to do this. So let me give you those two overwhelming reasons uh, one at a time. So I got two points for my sermon. Why, here's the question. Why should you teach all of Christ's commands? Why should you do and teach all of Christ's commands? Reason number one is in verses 17 and 18. And the reason why I say that those are reasons is because verse 19 begins with what word? What's the first word in verse 19? Therefore. If you see therefore, that means that the previous verses are a reason for verse 19. So that's reason number one. Verses 17 and 18 is the first reason for verse 19, for the duty of verse 19. And then verse 20 begins with what word? For. And what is that telling you? That that's a what? That's another reason. That's another reason why you are to do and teach all that Christ commands. Okay, so you see the two reasons there? Verses 17 and 18 give you one reason. In one sense, verses 18 and 19 give you, or verses 17 and 18, and then 19 and 20 give you the second reason. All right, so reason number one, why should you do and teach all that Christ commands? Look at verse 17. Don't think, Jesus says, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. For I tell you until heaven and earth, uh, for I tell you, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Okay, so what's the first reason why you should be doing and teaching Christ's commands? Because Jesus fulfills all of them. Or we could say Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament. See verse 17? He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but he came to do what? To the law and prophets. Fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Now, what are, what's the law and the prophets? If any of you know how the Jews uh, talk about their, their Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, they call it the Tanakh. Three letters, T-N-K. T is for Torah. What does Torah mean? What's that? Law or instruction. That's what it means, law. It's the first five books of Moses, but it means law. And then the N is a Hebrew word that stands for prophets. And then the, the K is for writings, but the law and the prophets. So when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets, I came to fulfill them, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Hebrew Bible. He says, I did not come to wipe away the Old Testament and start a new religion. I came to fulfill all that was communicated in the law and in the prophets. And if you read Luke 24, even the Psalms, the writings as well. But here, he just says law and prophets. That's shorthand for Old Testament, okay? So he's saying here, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And then in verse 18, in case you didn't get it, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away until all the things are accomplished. What does it mean, a stroke of a letter? What is the difference between the letter F 
the capital letter F and the capital letter E. There's one stroke, right? Just one stroke. Jesus is saying, every word of the Old Testament will be fulfilled. I will fulfill it all. And not one, not, not even one letter, not even one piece of a letter, not even one apostrophe, not even one stroke, not even one accent mark, not one stroke of a letter will pass away until every single word, concept, stroke of a letter is accomplished. It's all going to be done. I'm not putting away any of the Old Testament. It will all be accomplished, and I am the one who fulfills it. Does that make sense? You see what Jesus is saying here? He's the one who fulfills the Old Testament. He does not abolish it. Some people say, hey, you Christians, why don't you obey the Old Testament? Are you guys just abolishing the Old Testament? Why, don't, why do you eat bacon? I like bacon. Why do, you, why do you guys eat bacon? Is it because you just kind of brush aside parts of the Old Testament that you don't like? No, we don't abolish it. Jesus doesn't abolish it. He fulfills it. He fulfills it. Now, what does fulfill mean? The word fulfill means to bring about or to bring to completion, okay? Jesus brings to completion, he brings to pass what the Old Testament was pointing to. The Old Testament has pointed to things, it has promised some things, it has led you to think about certain things, and Jesus fulfills it all. Let me just tell you some of the things, you know, you could turn to here in Matthew if you want, but I'm just going to do a machine gun of the fulfill passages in the book of Matthew just so you can get a flavor of what he's fulfilling. In Matthew 1.22, he fulfills the prophecy of the virgin birth. In, in uh, Matthew 2.15, he comes out of Egypt, just like Hosea 11.1 talks about Israel coming out of Egypt. In Matthew 2.17, the tears that are cried when the babies are slaughtered are the tears of hopeful pain for the new covenant to come in Jeremiah 31. When Jesus is misunderstood and rejected in Matthew 2.23, he's called a Nazarene. Jesus fulfills that as being misunderstood and rejected. When Jesus is about to get baptized, John the Baptist says, time out, stop, pause. I am not baptizing you. You need to baptize me. Jesus says, no, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So he repents for the sins of his people by passing through water for them. Jesus never sinned, but he repents for those who are his people who have sinned. In Matthew 4.14, he, he is the light who shines in Galilee. That was a prophecy from the prophets. In Matthew 8.17, he fulfills the suffering servant prophecy. In Matthew 12.17, he fulfills being the suffering servant or the servant with the Holy Spirit who is the hope for all ethnic people groups. In Matthew 13.35, he is the, the teacher who fulfills the hardening of Israel, hardening of their hearts. In Matthew 21, 4, he's the humble king who enters on a donkey. In Matthew 26, 54, he is the one who fulfills the scriptures to suffer and die. And in Matthew 27, 9, lastly, he is betrayed, and that fulfills prophecy. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. The law and the prophets are fulfilled. And that's just Matthew. We could go through the rest of the New Testament if we wanted to. That's just Matthew's word. That's just where he uses the word fulfill in regard to the Old Testament and Jesus fulfilling it. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Now, let me just give you a broader, let's step back actually from just Matthew and let's actually look at the Old Testament. I'm just going to look at these two chunks, the law and the prophets. What are the books of the law? Tell them to me, those of you who know, five of them. What are they? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And who's the author? Moses is the author. So, so here are some of the pointers 
that Jesus is fulfilling in the law. He fulfills the whole law, and here's how he does it. In Genesis 3.15, God says a seed is going to crush Satan's head. In Genesis 12 and 17, Abraham is promised a seed who's going to be a blessing to all ethnic people groups because all ethnic people groups are cursed in their sin. In Genesis 49.10, from the tribe of Judah, a scepter will come out. A king will come from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49.10. In Exodus 4.22, now some of these are like direct prophecies, right? Let me give you one that's not really a direct prophecy, but is a picture of that Jesus fulfills. And you'll remember this if you remember our sermons in Matthew 1 through 4. God calls, ex, uh, God calls Israel his son in Exodus 4, 22. He calls Israel my son. He takes his son out of Egypt. They pass through what? The Red Sea. They pass through water. They end up in a wilderness for how long? How many years? 40. They end up there for 40 years. Now, what did Jesus do? Was Jesus, is Jesus the son of God? Yes. Did he come out of Egypt in the book of Matthew? Yeah, remember he retreated to Egypt when they were slaughtering the babies. And he came out of Egypt. Then did he pass through water? Yes, remember John was saying, I'm not going to baptize you. And he says, no, no, it's necessary for me to what? Fulfill all righteousness. So then he passes through water. After he passes through water, where does he go? Where does the Holy Spirit send him? Into the what? Wilderness, for how many days? 40 days. Jesus is fulfilling Israel's call. He is fulfilling the story of the Old Testament. We could even go further. That's just what we covered already in Matthew. Let me just go further. After they, after they go through the wilderness, they enter into the land, and they conquer the land and conquer the Canaanites, and they're supposed to stamp them all out and kick them out, right? Exercise them. What does Jesus do in his life and ministry now? What is he doing to demons everywhere? He's exercising demons. He's, he's casting demons out. And then when Israel does that, do they do it successfully? No. So what do they eventually do after disobeying God? What happens to Israel in the promised land? They get what? Kicked out. They get exiled under God's judgment. Does Jesus get exiled and judged after exercising demons? Yes. Where? On the cross. Then Israel's promised to return back to the land with this new creation restoration promise. And how does the, the gospel of Matthew end in chapter 28? Is Je does Jesus stay dead in judgment? No, he returns, he rises from the dead in resurrection. See, the story of Israel is the story of Jesus. Jesus came not to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. He came to embody it in himself so that all those who are united to him will also fulfill it. But I get ahead of myself with that comment right there. All right, I have a few. I have a lot more. Um, I'm going to skip over one of my favorite ones here, but let me go for more law, law fulfillments here. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19 through 24, does Jesus fulfill and keep all the commandments? Yes, he does. The Passover that Moses wrote about, does Jesus fulfill the Passover lamb idea? Yes. What about the Day of Atonement, the one-time sacrifice for the people? Does Jesus fulfill that? Yes. What about the Aaronic priesthood? Does Jesus fulfill the priesthood of praying for and representing his people? Yes. What about sacrifices? The daily sacrifices? Yes. Jesus in his one-time sacrifice. What about praying for his people as a priest? Jesus fulfills that. What about Deuteronomy 18? Moses said, after me will come a prophet who's like me. Moses is seen by Jews everywhere as the greatest prophet. 
But here Moses prophesies that there will be a prophet equal to him or even greater than him. Who fulfills that in Deuteronomy 18? Who's the person who's greater than Moses as a prophet for the people of Israel? Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the law. Not only that, I mean, even the restoration at the end of Deuteronomy, he prophesied, Moses prophesies the exile and says, you'll be, you'll be brought back. Who's the one who brings them back? Jesus. Do you see that Jesus does not discard the Old Testament? He fulfills everything that it pointed to. That's just the law. But he said, I, not, I did not come to abolish the law or the what? Prophets. How does he fulfill the prophets? Well, the conquest, they enter the land. I already told you, Jesus entering into the land and, and casting out demons. What about judges? So then there's the period of judges. Does Jesus judge? The judges are those rulers who have the Holy Spirit and they, they protect their people against oppression and against sin does Jesus, does, and leads them to repentance. Does Jesus do that? Yes. Then you have the book of Kings, which is in the prophets. But I'm sorry to, to confuse you, but yeah, in the prophets, there's the historical books and then some prophets. It's not just the major prophets. So I'm, I'm going through Joshua, Judges now, uh, first, and second, first and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Those, there are anointed ones. What's another word for anointed one? Messiah or Christ. David is a Christ. Solomon is a Christ. They're all messiahs. And they're longing for the true great Messiah, the son of David. Does Jesus fulfill the king's call? Yes, he does. And then you get to the actual prophets, what we call prophets. In Isaiah, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. A virgin birth, Jesus fulfills that. A branch who's filled by the Holy Spirit, Jesus fulfills that. The suffering servant, the new creation, the judgment of the nations, the nations streaming in and being attracted to the king in Jerusalem. Doesn't Jesus fulfill all of that? What about in Jeremiah? Jeremiah prophesies a new David to come who will shepherd his people. Who's that? Jesus. Ezekiel, same. He prophesies a, shepherd, uh, prophesies a shepherd. And then we can go through the 12 minor prophets. The point here is that all of the law and all of the prophets point to who? Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I fulfilled all of it. I fulfilled all of it. So if I had to summarize the Old Testament prophecy or promise in one sentence, here's my summary. Okay? So if you're taking notes, here's the summary. Hope of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. For God's people... God will reverse the curse and save sinners into his new creation paradise. That's the, that's the Old Testament summarized, okay? For God's people. You're like, wow, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. You're just gonna really do it in one sentence, PJ? Well, I'm trying, okay? For God's people, God will reverse the curse and save sinners into his new creation paradise. That's the Old Testament. And who is the one who reverses the curse and saves God's people into the new creation paradise. Who's the one? Jesus is, right? And so Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament. Now, how does Jesus fulfill all of the Old Testament? I have an answer, and I know this is not the Bible, your bulletin, but the answer is in your bulletin. If you go to song number two, hymn insert number two, you got four verses for Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And these four verses mention the four aspects of Jesus' coming. Verse 1, incarnation. God becomes a man. Second stanza here, 
God or Jesus, the God-man, lives a perfect life. You can even see it there. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ the great and sure what? Fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. So there it is. And that's speaking of the laws that he fulfilled, even though he fulfills more than just obedience. His life. So you have incarnation, life. The third stanza is about his what? His death on the cross. And the fourth stanza is about his resurrection, right? How does Jesus fulfill all of the Old Testament? In his incarnation coming to earth, in his perfect life, in his death on the cross for sinners, and in his resurrection from the dead. In that, those four things, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, in that, all of the Old Testament, indeed all of God's promises are fulfilled. Now that might sound funny. Does that sound funny? That it's all fulfilled in Christ already? 33 AD, this is 2018. Are we still waiting for some prophecies to be fulfilled? Aren't we? When, are we just saying, come, Lord, come? Why are you saying that it's all fulfilled already in 33 AD if we're still singing, come, Lord, come? Because, so uh, let me ask it this way. Are, is all of the prophe- is all, are all prophecies already fulfilled? Yes or no? How many of you say no? Raise your hand. How many of you say yes? Raise your hand. Oh, one of you. How many of you say both? All right. Yes, it's both. Okay. It's both. It's all fulfilled, and it's not yet all fulfilled. PJ, that sounds like a contradiction of the law of non-contradiction. Yes, it does, but let me explain. In, one, in what sense do I mean this? Is it all fulfilled? No, not in the sense that people are still being gathered. Are, still, are, are, the, are the ones that God is going to save, are they still coming in? Yes, that's why we're still here, right? There's still more to be saved. There's still 3,000 ethnic people groups in the world who are unengaged. We need to send missionaries. We need to be praying for them. We need to be sending our own people there, right? Because people from every tribe, language, people, and nation will be there at the throne um, represented. So we still have work to do there. Um, So no, not everything is fulfilled in that regard. The new earth hasn't come yet. I'm still decaying. My knee still hurts from my sprained knee a few weeks ago. This is clearly not a resurrected body. There are still prophecies to be fulfilled. And yet, have all of them been fulfilled? Yes. What do I mean, yes? Well, everything up to Christ has been done. People who will be saved, but not only that, when Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. What did he mean it is finished? What he meant is that everything, all the promises and prophecies were secured in him. But not only that, when Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, he secured all those who would ever be saved. Let me, let me put it this way. Have you read Romans? You've read Romans 6 before. Some of you have. It says that when Christ died, who else died with Christ? We did. Now, I was not born. In, I was born in the 1900s. But when Christ died, who died with Christ? PJ. What? And when Christ rose from the dead, Romans 6, who rose with him? Christ did. Or I did, right? We did. Those who are in Christ, they die in Christ, they rise in Christ even before they're born. For all time, everyone who will ever be saved from every ethnic tribe, language, people, and nation, they were all dead with Christ on that cross in 33 AD. And when Christ rose on the third day, every tribe, tongue, and nation who would be saved, everyone from those tribe, tongue, people, and language who would be saved, they were all raised with Christ on that day. And the new earth that is to come was secured and, and started 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that Lord's Day. Do you see how important the Lord's Day is? We talk about resurrection and celebrating the resurrection every Sunday. Literally, the whole new creation hinges on the Lord's Day. Not this Lord's Day, the very first Lord's Day in 33 AD. But still, that's why we celebrate every week. Because that is our hope. So what I'm saying here is that all of the promises that are still to come, even the second coming, is already embodied in Christ's resurrection. So here's another way of saying it. People talk about the already not yet. In one sense, the kingdom has already come and all the prophecies have been already fulfilled in in Christ's death and resurrection, life, death, and resurrection. In another sense, it has not yet fully come. Okay? So here's another way I say it. Positionally, it is all fulfilled and accomplished in Christ. But in history and on this earth and our lives, it is being fulfilled and it has not yet been completely applied. What Christ has completed is still being applied. It's not yet completely applied to everyone and the universe, but it will be because it was secured. Christ fulfilled it. All right? So what are some lessons here? Let's apply this and we'll move to point number two. What are some lessons here? We learned that the Old Testament is still relevant. The Old Testament was relevant. The Old Testament is still relevant. Why? Because the Old Testament points to who? Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to see Jesus' glory? Then read the Old Testament because you can see the glories of Christ in the Old Testament in ways you can't merely by reading the New. You have to know, I mean, the more you know the Old Testament, if it points to Jesus and you love Jesus and you live for Jesus, then you want to read the Old Testament because you want to know about your Savior. Jesus completes and orients the Old Testament around himself. He changes the way we even understand the Old Testament. Not because the Old Testament changed, but because now that the incomplete sentence is complete, it sheds light on the whole sentence, doesn't it? So all of the Old Testament hope is in Jesus, and therefore we need to read, study, and enjoy the Old Testament as a way of knowing and enjoying and following Jesus. So the application for you Christians is see Jesus in the reading of the Bible. See that all of your life and hope is Tied to Jesus. Let me try an imperfect analogy to try to get the application. So me and John Lee, last night, um, John Lee's no longer a member, by the way, as of Wednesday. So you can't email him on the church group email. You won't get to him anymore. But you can still email him. Um, So it was his birthday yesterday, so I greet him, happy birthday. And uh, he's thankful for some of you guys who sent some things to him. Uh, We tried to work on an analogy last night, me, him, and Chris, and we were unsuccessful together. So I came up with one later, and it's not that great, but I'm going to just, it's, it's helpful, I think, in some way. Um, let me try to get this application that when you read the Old Testament, now that you know it's all about Jesus, you should always see it and aim to see and deal with Jesus when you read the Old Testament. So if you and some of your loved ones, pick you and three of your loved ones, have to live together for four days in a project, okay? This is a project. For four days, you have to live together in a pitch black room for four days, okay? Groping around and trying to get to the food and water that's provided daily for you, groping around and trying to find your way to the beds and to the toilet, and every time you do this and try to make your way around this room, you feel something in the middle of the room, and you might wonder how it all, what it is, because you can't see it's pitch black. You walk into sometimes what feels like a wall, Other times, you feel a rope dangling and moving around in the middle of this room. Other times, you feel a post that's the size of a tree trunk 
there. Still, other times when you're groping around and, and, and finding your way, you feel something like a water hose that occasionally sprays water on you. Three days into the pro- project of being in a pitch black room, someone turns the lights on and you realize that there is a what? An elephant standing in the middle of the room. With the lights on for the next 24 hours, you will live in light of the fact that there is an elephant in the middle of the room. Everything in days one through three now make more sense, and you now live a lot more comfortably and effectively for those last 24 hours. You can never unsee or unknow what you now know, that there's an elephant in the room, and that is the major factor that dictates and that you have to work around for all your living and moving. Okay, that's not a perfect analogy, but here's the point. Jesus is the elephant in the room in the Old Testament and in the Bible. You can, once you know that he fulfills everything, you can't just read the Old Testament just for commands. You can't just read it for nice stories. You have to get to Jesus. You have to deal with Jesus because all of it points to him and he fulfills the whole thing. So church family, what does this mean for us as a church? Point to Jesus, preach Jesus, and make everything in our church always about and centered on Jesus. He's our center and our goal. We don't center on anything else as a church. It's Christ and Christ alone. Expect Jesus to be central in the preaching and teaching of this church. And when it's not, give me feedback. Shoot me an email. I need more Jesus. PJ, you're not preaching enough Jesus. Listen to, if you want to know how the Old Testament works, listen to, I I think we have what, like maybe 10 sermons now I've preached on the Old Testament overview. We did Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and we just did like last, before we went back to Matthew, we did, um, what did we do? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. So we did some Old Testament books there. Look at, listen to those sermons and just listen to how all of that has to do with Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I have good news for you as well. You're saying, well, PJ, this is great for Christians because it fulfills their hope of their reading assignment, the Bible, but I don't care about the Bible. So what, what is this for me? Here's what it is for you. When I talk about Jesus fulfilling the hope of the Old Testament, I'm actually talking about him fulfilling the hope of the world. Even if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, do you enjoy the reality that you're going to die soon? And that everything around you is dying and decaying? Do you enjoy all the brokenness of this world? Or do you long for something like eternal life? Something like eternal joy that doesn't diminish? Something like a perfect environment where there's nothing messed up or broken at all? Some, a place where there's no selfishness and there's perfect harmony between humanity, God, and the world they live in. You don't have to be Christian to long for that, right? You just have to be human. And here's what I'm telling you. Here's the good news. Jesus fulfills your hopes too. Because deep down as a human, you hope for this new earth. You hope for this new world. You hope for a new body. You hope for renewed relationships where there is no more brokenness or selfishness or sin. And the good news is Jesus is offering this hope to you. He made you. He created you. He will judge you because we're all sinners who deserve damnation and hell for our sins. But he doesn't just judge you. He died for sinners and rose from the dead so that if you would turn from your sins and turn from your own personal goodness and your own religion and your own personal righteousness and trust in him alone for your salvation, you will be saved. He will save you. 
He will transform you. He will forgive you. And he will give to you not only a transformation, but a future. You will be saved and you will have the hope that the whole world yearns for and that God has promised and already fulfilled and will fulfill in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you this morning. God is calling you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. If you're part of a general Christian church, I mean, to all Christians everywhere, those part of the universal gospel, universal church or Catholic church, not Roman Catholic, that's not that, but I'm talking about the gospel Catholic church, universal church. What unites all Christians in all of our differences on baptism and church polity and current societal issues in our day is our union to Christ, right? It's our faith in Christ alone, our faith alone in Christ alone for our salvation. This unity that we have with other Christians must be celebrated as primary, even though we disagree about secondary things. Children, look at Jesus and trust in Jesus. Everything is fulfilled that you want in Jesus. Parents, point your children to Jesus as the hero and the main issue when you're correcting them and even spanking them. Spouses, reflect and savor Jesus together. Singles, find fulfillment in communing with Jesus and use your singleness to serve Jesus. Those in the workforce, serve Jesus more than serving your earthly employers. Students, learn not just to learn for good grades, but learn to learn more about Jesus in and through your learning. Retirees, rest in Jesus and find your retirement and peace and direction for this season of your life in Jesus. If you're a discouraged Christian here today, good news, Jesus is for you. He favors you and he will see you through. If you're feeling weak, Jesus strengthens you to overcome the challenges in front of you and within you. If you're stumbling, Jesus picks you up. If you're stubborn and you feel your heart is hard and you want it to soften, but you just can't soften it, Jesus changes and captivates your heart. If you're encouraged, Jesus is continuing to cheer you on. And if you are feeling strong in this season of your Christian life, Jesus reminds you to depend on him alone for strength and not your current season of strength. Brothers and sisters, do and teach all of Christ's commands so that you shine as his gospel light and prove yourselves to be a kingdom citizen. So why should you do and teach all Christ's commands? First of all, because Jesus fulfills all your hopes and all the hopes of this broken, sin-cursed world. Don't you want people to have that hope? Share the gospel with them, right? Teach it to them. You don't have bad news to share with them. It's not some cranky news you get to share with your coworkers and your, your students, or your, your classmates, your neighbors, it's the greatest news that they all long for. All right, that's the first reason. Second reason why we need to um, do and teach all that Christ commands is because only the surpassingly righteous enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the surpassingly righteous enter the kingdom of heaven. You see that point in verse 20. Go back to Matthew 5 and look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, what? surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's why my point number two is, why should you do and teach? Because only the surpassingly righteous enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, what, what does this mean? So look at verse um, 18, or ni uh, 19. Look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, whoever breaks... Now, break is not a good command there, or not a good translation. See, for those who say, PJ, you're CSB only. Everything is CSB. It's the word... Like, no. I even correct um, the CSB translation in my preaching. Break is not a good translation here. The, the, the PJV, PJ version, say, translates it, um, 
Therefore, whoever repeals or renders useless the least of these commands. The NIV says, whoever sets aside one of the least of these commands. The ESV says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands. The Lexham English Bible says, the one who, the, the one who abolishes one of the least of these commands. The NASB says, the one who annuls the least of these commands. All of those translations are better than breaks. So CSB and KJV and NKJV, they got this one wrong. Jesus is saying anyone who repeals or renders useless or sets aside or relaxes or annuls even the smallest of the Old Testament commands, you will be what? According to verse 19. That one will be called what? Look at the verse. The answer is there. They will be called what? Least in the kingdom of heaven. Least in the kingdom of heaven. But then the one who does and teaches these things, they will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the good news is they're both in the kingdom of heaven. Praise God for that, right? But some people, sometimes we, us, actually everyone, sometimes we, do you ever relax on some of God's commands? Do you ever set aside some of God's commands, some of the smaller ones maybe? The technicalities, let's not, we even use the word, let's not be legalistic. Legalism being an excuse to disobey. Let's render this command use. This doesn't apply here. That's legalism. If you relax on the smallest of God's commands, God cares. God is violated. God is angered. God is sinned against. And if anyone relaxes on the least of these commands, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what commands? The law and the prophets. Commands of what? The Old Testament or New Testament? Law and prophets are Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament. So anyone who relaxes on any of the Old Testament, any of the commands of the Old Testament, will be called least in the kingdom. Now, if we just understood verse 17, who fulfills the Old Testament? Jesus. So if you're going to obey the commands of the Old Testament, it's not just the commands of the Old Testament, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. So now you've got to obey the commands of the Old Testament as they are seen in light of who? Jesus, which is why I eat bacon. Because in the Old Testament, you were not allowed to eat bacon in the theocracy as a citizen of Israel. But as Christ has fulfilled it, we still obey, we still honor those commands, but we understand that Christ has fulfilled that command. And now we have new covenant commands. But we don't erase the Old Testament verses and say they're not relevant anymore. They are relevant, but they're not relevant directly to us. They are relevant through Christ to us. Does that make sense? Everything has to go from the Old Testament through Christ, actually through the whole Bible. Everything has to go through Christ to you. Everything in the Old Testament. And if you relax on any of the Old Testament or say you can erase some of it, it doesn't apply, it doesn't mean anything for us as Christians, you're wrong. It all applies because it all points to Jesus. And you love Jesus and you're united to Jesus, so you need to obey all that the Old Testament commands rightly applied through Jesus and all that Jesus commands because he interprets and even teaches more revelation um, beyond the Old Testament. All right? So here's the point. Do not relax or repeal or set aside or go sloppy on some of the commands of the Bible. Those who do that will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There are ranks. There is a ranking or there's, a, there's, a, there's gradations of privilege, honor, and reward in heaven. Just like there are gradations of punishment in hell. 
There are gradations of reward in heaven. If that sounds unappealing to you, I submit to you it's because me and you are still selfish. And we want to be exalted above others, and that's why we don't like it. But when you have no self-centeredness at all, you just have God-centeredness, you don't mind that at all. You celebrate it. You celebrate those who are ranked above you because you have no pride. You're perfectly humble at that point. All right? Let me give you an illustration of this ranking thing. You guys know Matthew 20. You might not. You don't have to turn it. Matthew 20, 23 to 26. It's um, Jesus' last day with his disciples. And um, James and John get their mom to come to talk to Jesus. And they say, um, come on, mom, you got to do this. He never says no to you. He likes you. All right, so mom comes, James and John come, and they're like, hey, we need to talk to you, Jesus. Can we talk to you privately? We don't want to talk in front of everyone here. It's more of a personal matter. So they, they get Jesus to the side. And as he talks to Jesus, they say, you know what, Lord, uh, can we, the mom says, can my sons have the right and left spots next to your throne? Can they get the best spots, the, the, the spots of highest authority and greatest honor and privilege in your kingdom? And then Jesus answers, are they able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? And the, James and John look at each other and say, yeah, we're able to drink that. What, what cup? Give me the cup. I'm drinking right now. Right? So they're, they're ready to drink it. And then Jesus says, well, you guys actually will drink a cup. You will drink the cup, but the places on the right and left are not mine to give, but the Father. And then the other ten hear about it. And then they say, you know what? James and John are right. They deserve those spots. Is that what the other ten said? No. What? That's my spot. And they start fighting with each other, right? And so you got, you got the others finding out. Everyone's self-centered here, right? So they all fight for the best spot, the best spots. Put your phone on silent, please. They, they, they fight for the best spots. And, and, and in, in the fighting for the best spot here, what does Jesus say? He says this. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Those who are what? The least and those who serve. And if you're going to be the greatest, then you need to serve all. Is Jesus saying, don't pursue greatness? He's not saying that. Is he telling you to pursue greatness? How do you pursue greatness? By becoming what? The least and being servant of all, right? That's, so gradations in reward are not unbiblical in the kingdom. Jesus says, pursue it. Go for it. For you to say, well, I'm so humble, you know, I don't want the greatest spot in the kingdom. That's not humility. What is that? That's pride. That's disobedience. That's relaxing on God's commands. If you don't want to be great in the kingdom, you don't want the king of the kingdom. Because greatness in the kingdom is humbling yourself before our king and serving the king's bidding. That's false humility to say, I don't want to be great in the kingdom. And so going back to this text, Jesus says, you're least in the kingdom when you relax on God's commands. You should want greatness. You should want to be humble. You should want to serve. You should want to obey all that the Bible says, even the least of the commands, and not relax on any of them. Not even a letter or a part of a letter, a stroke of a letter. But you want to take it all because you love your king and you love his kingdom. So yeah, I mean, yes, we should be happy we get in. It's, it's a bigger deal to get in than to be great in the kingdom. Absolutely. We should celebrate that. But I want you to see from, from Jesus, he doesn't want you to just settle for that. He doesn't want you to settle for that. He wants you to pursue greatness in the kingdom. He calls you to follow him. 
I mean, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus. Did he not humble himself? Did he not serve all? Did he not keep every single letter of the law and not relax on any of them? He did. Do you want to honor him and be like him? Then you do the same. Don't be content with just saying, well, I'm in. So now I can relax on these laws. That's not Christian. All right, so why is status of greatness tied to doing God's commands? That's all verse 19. That was all verse 19, okay? So it'd be great. Now, why? Why should, why should you not relax on any of the law? Why should you try to do all of it? Why should you try to teach all of it? Why should you try to do all the Christ-centered, Christ-interpreted Old Testament and all the New Testament? Why should you do it? Answer verse 20. For I tell you, this is scary now, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never what? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? So what do you need? Righteousness. And your righteousness, your righteousness needs to surpass whose righteousness? The scribes and the Pharisees. Now, did the scribes and Pharisees try to obey God's law? Were they careful and meticulous? Yes, they were. You read Paul's testimony in, in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, and Paul says, I'll read it to you right now, Paul says this. He says, um, if anyone has, thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. I was blameless in keeping the Pharisaic law, which was based on the Old Testament. I was blameless. And Jesus is saying, you have to surpass Paul. Pharisaical Paul. If you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you relax, you won't ent- you, you're not one of those who enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who enter the kingdom have a surpassing righteousness that surpasses, that surpasses the Pharisees, the scribes, and even the apostle Paul when he was a Pharisee. Now, what does it mean to have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees? Is Jesus teaching here that by your righteousness you will be saved and justified? No. That would be contradicting other passages of the Bible. Is he teaching works righteousness? No. He is not teaching that. Is he teaching that you should pursue righteousness? Yes. So if I'm not saved, if I don't enter heaven, if I'm not justified and accepted by God for the kingdom through my own righteousness, um, or yeah, if, I'm not, if he's not telling me to be righteous to earn my way to heaven, what is he saying here? that my righteousness has surpassed the scribes and the Pharisees. I'll tell you the answer, and then I'll, I'll back it up here. He's saying that if you're truly a Christian, if you're truly one of Christ's people, your righteousness, if you're truly one of Christ's people because you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, not your own works, if that's truly you, it will produce good works, and it'll produce righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and scribes. Does that make sense? It's proof, not cause. It's fruit, not root of your salvation. Does that make sense? Okay, now let me, give you, let me show you why from the text. What does it mean to pursue righteousness? Look at 5.3. Blessed are the what in spirit? What is righteousness? Being poor in spirit. Verse 4, it's mourning. In verse 5, it's being humble. In verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. When you realize you don't have it, you're bankrupt and broke, then you hunger for it and thirst for it. Then uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they don't have it. They will be what? They will be filled. 
Christ fills you with righteousness. Not your righteousness, his own righteousness first. Okay? And that flows into being compassionate, being pure of heart, being a peacemaker, being persecuted, being light and salt with joy in persecution. Now, what does it mean to pursue this kind of righteousness? If Christ gives me his righteousness, his righteous standing in Christ, and if Christ transforms me to become righteous, what does that look like that's greater than Pharisees and scribes? By the way, a scribe is someone who copies the Bible with their hands. They're, they, they're a scribe. They write. So they know the Bible better than everyone else because they're the ones who make copies. There are no copy machines. There's no cut and paste. There's handwriting, and the scribes are the ones who did it. So they know the law better than everyone. So how do you get a righteousness that surpasses scribes and Pharisees? Let's just, I'm just going to summarize the rest of the, the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll tell you right now through the summary. Here, here's how you surpass them. You go beyond the letter of the law, not minimizing the letter of the law. When I say go beyond, that doesn't mean minimize it. You still have to be careful to obey everything it says. But go beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. So what, what, are we, what we're going to cover in the next few weeks, instead of saying don't murder, don't be what? Angry in your heart. Instead of saying don't commit adultery, go further than that. Don't look at a woman with what? Lustful intent. Instead of saying um, keep your, keep, or don't get divorced, or, or, yeah, like, or, yeah, don't get divorced and just be monogamous. He talks about being permanently committed. If he talks, if, if it's keep your promises, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're going to um, love your neighbors, should you hate your enemies? No, you should also love them. If you're going to pray and fast, should you show it off to other people? No, it should be personal. If you are worried about the things of this world, should you worry about it or should you focus on heaven? You should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You should, kill, you should have confidence that kills anxiety. Um, when you judge other people, you should take the log out of your own eye first. That's what it means to have surpassing righteousness, that you're humble before you correct other people. But you still correct other people. Um, it means you're fervent and confident in prayer. It means you obey the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It means that you hear and obey Christ's commands. Indeed, it means that you see Christ as the fulfillment of all of the Bible and your only hope. That is surpassing righteousness. The people who do that, those are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. They're not stuck on the letter. They go to the heart. They're not showing off. They're private with their righteousness. They're not focused only on earthly things. They're focused on heavenly things. They're not worried about the things of the earth because they seek first the kingdom of God and their righteousness. They don't, they're not just correcting people all the time or not correcting anyone. They correct after looking at the log in their own eye first. They're not people who are prayerless. They're people who are prayerful. They are indeed people who do unto others as they would have them do unto you. That is what a Christian and a follower of Jesus is. Those are the people who enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that tough? Is that hard or is that easy? Seems hard, right? PJ, I thought you were encouraging us today. That sounds discouraging. It does. So let me encourage you. I'm turning to Ezekiel 36 in my Bible. You don't have to turn there. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Here's good news, brothers and sisters. And Jesus fulfills this. Listen to this. God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Who is going to give you a heart? 
Who's going to change you so much? Give you his Holy Spirit. Change your heart. Jeremiah 31, write, your law, write his law on your heart so that you follow his statutes and carefully observe his ordinances. Very carefully, not just on the letter of law, but in the heart. Who's the one who's going to do that for you? Jesus is, right? So here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't only fulfill the Old Testament for you. He fulfills the Old Testament in you. The surpassing righteousness you need to enter the kingdom is fulfilled by Christ, not just for you positionally, but in you as you live your life every day. As you sit here and listen to the sermon, what is the Holy Spirit doing to you? What is Christ doing to you right now if you're listening and God is working in you? He is forming in you right now a desire for obedience, a desire for righteousness, a desire for repentance, a desire for humility. That's what Christ does. He doesn't only do it for you, he does it in you. Day by day, moment by moment, he's applying his finished work to you. And that's good news. So Christians, Christians are those who have surpassing righteousness. If Christ does not fulfill it for you, or I mean, if Christ is not fulfilling it in you, then he hasn't fulfilled it for you. Do you get that? So who's a Christian? Who's a true Christian who's going to heaven? If Christ is not fulfilling his surpassing righteousness in your life, then he has not fulfilled it for your life. But if he has fulfilled it for your life and you trust in him, then guess what? He will be fulfilling it in your life. And if he's not, you don't have that surpassing righteousness. And if you don't, you're not a Christian. You're not entering the kingdom of heaven. This is why you must do and teach all that Christ commands because that's what Christians do. That's what he gave us his Holy Spirit to do. That's why he wrote his law on our heart to do and teach. He gives you that burden. He gives you that passion. He gives you that joy. He changes you from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so, brothers and sisters, do and teach all that Christ commands you because Jesus fulfills it for you. That was point one and point two, because Jesus fulfills it in you. He gives you the surpassing righteousness. And that, my, my brothers and sisters, is good news. So, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Know and obey all of God's commands. And here, brothers and sisters, love all of God's commands. When God changes your heart, he does this. 1 John 5, 3 and 4 says this. For this is what the love of God, love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands, listen to this, his commands are not a burden. Why? Because everyone who has been born of God has been changed by God has had this fulfill, being fulfilled in them, everyone who's been born of God, born again, conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquered the world, our faith. Every Christian loves not only God, but loves God's commands. And if the Bible feels primarily to you like a burden, it might be because your heart has never been changed. But when your heart is changed, you love the commands. You love every line. Not just the greatest of them, but even the least of them. You love it all. It's not a burden. So brothers and sisters, if it is a burden, it feels like a burden to me sometimes. You know what I try to do? I confess that to the Lord. Lord, my heart is hard. My heart is out of sync with this command. I do not want to ask forgiveness for my wife right now. I do not want to be humble. I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to apologize. I don't want to ask for forgiveness. I just want to sleep and let the problem go away. And God says, nope. It's a burden to you right now, but as I keep changing your heart, 
it'll become not only not a burden, it'll become a delight that I command you to do these things. And that's God changing you. That's surpassing righteousness. So brothers and sisters, beware of, here's the two problems. Here's the two, two errors, okay? Legalism and lawlessness. What's lawlessness? Well, Christ saved us, so what we do doesn't matter. We're all saved. We're all going to heaven. Laws don't matter. That's lawlessness. That's wrong. The other error is legalism. Legalism is God will love us more or he'll favor us because of our obedience. Is that true? That our favor depends on our obedience ultimately? No. Now, brothers, that's, brothers and sisters, that's true of non-Christians. Let me show you how it shows up in our church and in my life. Here are the two Christian errors. Sloppiness in obedience and heartless precision. Sloppiness in obedience and heartless precision. What do I mean by sloppiness in obedience? What I mean by sloppiness in obedience is, um, you know, we're going to be legalistic if we're too specific. So um, we had a pastor's conference here, Shepherd LA, um, last week, and one of the pastors said, you know what, if you talk about membership and baptism and communion that specific, that can be legalistic. It can be legalistic in terms of heartless precision, but it can also be sloppy lawlessness if you don't obey everything Christ commands, right? So just because someone says, hey, that might be legalistic, it might be, but it also might be sloppy obedience. So beware of sloppy obedience. Just because someone's specific with their obedience doesn't mean they're legalistic yet. What's legalism? Legalism is heartless precision. That would be one of our temptations, sloppiness or heartless precision. What's heartless precision? Precision in membership, baptism, and communion, for example, is why God likes Bethany Baptist Church more than other churches. It's why our church is better than other churches. That's legalism. That's self-righteousness. That's arrogance. Beware of sloppy obedience and beware of heartless precision. But be precise where God tells you to be precise. And be broad where God tells you to be broad. Does that make sense, brothers and sisters? Church family, let's learn from each other and let's teach each other. Let me close here with an application to non-Christians. If, I, if you're not a Christian, you're here, thank you for coming. You might say, you know what, PJ, this is exactly why I would never be a Christian. Thank you, for being, thank you for being so straightforward this morning. I would never be a Christian because you Christians, uh, for you Christians, the Bible and the church dictate everything you must know, feel, believe, and do. You aren't encouraged to make your own moral decisions or to come to your own conclusions about your beliefs. Look at, your, look at our world today. There are so many religions, perspectives, opinions, and cultures that your Christian way of life is unbelievable and impractical. I want to be free. I want everyone to be free to choose how they live. This is the only way to authentically be yourself. I should only feel guilty, and people should only feel guilty when they're not doing, when I'm not doing me, when I'm not being true to me, and I'm not choosing my own beliefs and practices and values and goals for my life. That's the only authentic life. I could never be a Christian because you guys do it on a book. Let me respond to that briefly. If everyone gets to choose what's right for themselves, then you can never truly oppose them or be morally outraged by their decisions. If you really believe that everyone gets a right to choose for themselves and be free, like you say, let me ask you a question. Is there anyone in the world doing something that you deeply disagree with and you would have strong belief that they should stop doing no matter what they believed in their heart? Are there anything, is there anything that you'd say that people can't do even if they believed it in their heart? If you do, and you do, then you believe that there are moral convictions that are outside us that can judge us. Can't Christians have the same right to believe in moral convictions and judge just like you believe? And secondly, no one is really free anyways, are they? 
We all live for some ultimate value and functionality that is our Lord and Master. Everyone is happily restricted by their greatest passion, their greatest value, and their greatest treasure. If you try to live free from being bound to any and all commitments, then you are committed to being non-committal. You are bound to not commit, so you are still committed. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about that doesn't need you to um, commit, that does, you don't need commands to commit to because you already love it? Is it a relationship? Is it a habit like sleeping or eating or exercising or working or learning or lounging around the house? What is your treasure where you joyfully do it? That is your master. The difference is that Christianity teaches you that Jesus is your greatest treasure and he's the only master that dies for your sins and rises from the dead. Your master, if it's not Jesus, will never lead you to life, but only to death and hopelessness in the end. So rest in Jesus if you're not a Christian. Children, learn to obey joyfully. Parents, model joyful obedience and repentance. Spouses, keep obeying God's word when you fight. Keep it central in your fighting. Singles, use your time to teach and do more of the scriptures. Workers and students, find ways to teach your coworkers and classmates the goodness of God's commands. Retirees, use your experience to teach others how to repent and walk with Jesus. If you're discouraged or weak or stumbling or stubborn, Jesus not only fulfills the Old Testament hope for you, he fulfills it in you. Be encouraged. If you are already encouraged and strong, understand this, Jesus gets all the credit for working for you and in you for his good pleasure. So let us teach and do all the commands. If you don't taste of God's goodness and obey his commands, you won't disciple others well. You, won't, you will contradict your message with your demeanor and your hesitant evangelism, and you'll shrink in knowing Christ personally. But if you taste God's goodness in the Bible, you'll draw near to him, you'll enjoy Jesus, and you'll want to share him, and you'll enthusiastically share him with others as a way of multiplying the joy. So in your loving in your knowing, in your obeying, and in your enjoying Jesus, go, disciple your neighbors and disciple the nations, teaching them to observe everything Christ commanded in the glory of his goodness. Father, we pray now that you would help us to do and teach all that Christ commands with a heart of love and excitement in the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ who fulfills it all for us, and is fulfilling it in us, and will one day fulfill it in all creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.